Hello, hello, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is known best for being very, quote, dedicated to helping analytics practitioners stay at the top of their data storytelling game. Stay tuned to find out who's taking us to school on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 80. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to the 80th episode of Present Beyond Measure. Wow, we are hitting those milestones. It is still the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through your thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. Today's interview features data storytelling wisdom from one of the most popular figures in the LinkedIn data analytics sphere today. It is jam-packed with good stuff. But before we get rolling, I have just a few key updates for you. First, a big thank you to ePark41 for leaving an awesome review for the show on Apple Podcasts. They say, best in class. I've been a fan of this podcast for years. As a data community manager for my company, I refer my coworkers to this podcast as a way to increase their data fluency, not just about premiering data better, but also for improving their data think. Are they asking the right questions before they start to design data solutions? Also, the guests on this podcast are some of the stars in the industry. Thanks, Leah, for inspiring me and my company to think and work better around all things data. Aw, thank you so much for the support, E. I'm so grateful to you. And please be sure to leave a review on the show in Spotify or podcasts if you find this to be a useful resource. And I just may read yours next. Now, as usual, I'm so excited for today's guest, but in particular... This person is a meteoric rising star as one of the top LinkedIn voices in the data field, and she is one of the hardest working people in the data space that I have ever met in helping data practitioners like you. So let's do it. All right, everyone. Hello and welcome. Today's guest is the founder of Dedicated, providing brand amplification for companies focused on AI, machine learning, and data science. She's also founder of the Dedicated Circle, a community of data professionals and a hub for courses on data visualization best practices, data storytelling, and dashboarding, which we all love. So she has several courses on data storytelling, dashboarding, and other best practices. She's also the host of the Dedicated Conference and the Dedicated On Air podcast. She was appointed a LinkedIn top voice of data science and analytics in 2018 and 19, has an unreal number of followers on LinkedIn, including myself. And she's here to talk about all things kicking ass at data storytelling. So please help me welcome my latest guest in my superstar women in analytics spotlight, Kate Strachny. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. It's been a long time since this conversation started. So I'm so happy this is 
finally happening. So obviously, you don't need much of an introduction. For me, you're one of the most potent voices in the data field. And I so admire all the work that you're doing to really help data practitioners up their game in all different areas. But one of those is, of course, near and dear to my heart, data storytelling. So I would love to hear your origin story. Everyone loves to hear how a superhero got into this wacky and wonderful world of data. Absolutely. Thank you. I'd love to share that. And I'll do kind of a high-speed journey because... (laughs) A 2x. (laughs) From A to B or to X. Yes, exactly. Because the, the journey didn't start out even remotely on data. I started with wanting to be a person that works in finance, which I know sounds super broad, but I get the same vibe now when people say, I want to work in data. And I'm like, well, there's a million (laughs) things you could do. But anyways, I've held roles in risk management and became a consultant where, again, I was focused on risk management, regulatory compliance. And fast forward to like 2014, I was expecting my first child and the schedule that I had to maintain as part of this consulting gig meant that I had to work late nights, I had to work weekends, I had to travel all the time. And I realized that just was not in my vision of how I wanted to parent my child. And I ended up asking internally, are there any jobs that can keep me working from home? This is pre-COVID. This was not normal. This is now it's like, yeah, you have to stay home. (laughs) So, (laughs) So back then it was difficult. And it took me about eight months or so just in time for when I went on maternity leave They gave me a role and they said, okay, you're going to be an insights strategy manager. I'm like, whatever that is, I'll take it. It keeps me home 99% of the time. I had to come in once a month to like check a box or something. And essentially that was my introduction to the world of data because they gave me a tool. At that time I was using Tableau. That's what the company used mainly. And they gave me a data set, which was really just access to Salesforce, a CRM tool where they just provided me with data. And they said, we would like you to give us insights. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, what, what do I do? Where do I start? Oh. <laughs> it's like, okay. thanks. That's a lot. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. So I just started <laughs> going through this. And as I learned and developed design data visualizations, I literally fell in love. And like every time I got a new request to create a dashboard, to create a, a data viz, it just lit a fire because I always loved design As a consultant, we build a lot of PowerPoint slides and decks. And we basically, there's a joke that says consultants think in slides because we don't even like think normally. And I think data visualization allowed me to take the skills that I had, the design skills for PowerPoint presentations and design data visualizations and dashboards in Tableau. Now, I did that for a couple of years and moved into different roles where I even ended up working for one of the CEOs of the broader firm that I worked for designing dashboards and management reporting, which was so much fun because then you get to see your creation being used by all these powerful people. And you're like, look, I Mm. made that. Nobody knew that I made that, honestly. But It's like another form of childbirth. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, that's my baby. People are looking at my baby. And I loved all the work that I did there, but I've always wanted to run my own show, especially with at this point, two kids. I really wanted to create my own schedule. I love working, but I love working my own hours and I love working on the things that I want to work on. So entrepreneurship is something that I've always wanted to do. And March 2020 is when I decided to go full-time with my company, Dedicated, 
which ended up doing a, quite a bit of different things as I tried to learn what I really like doing. Yep. <laughs> but that's the best part, right? Of running your own show, you get to experiment and see what you actually like. Oh, absolutely. And it's so interesting. We have such a similar genesis for how we ended up in this where way before COVID, a need for work-life balance, which, oh, motherhood is such a beautiful way of throwing in your lap, like you need this, (laughs) can be the inspiration for asking yourself. For me, it really was, if I'm going to spend all of this time away from my child, which I really didn't want to do that much, how am I going to best use that time? Do I want to use that to help one company or do I want to help people all over the world with these skills? And it's incredible. So thank you, motherhood, for bringing Kate <laughs> to the world. <laughs> yeah, it really made me question really... so much. I'm like, it gave me the push. I think a lot of people say their life becomes more complicated. For me, everything became so clear. I'm like, Yes. Time is valuable. And why am I oh, yes. throwing it away? I mean, I've learned a lot, obviously, and got a lot of experience, but I'm just so glad that I'm here now. <laughs> Absolutely. Freedom has different currency, and it can be money and it can be time. Absolutely, 100%. Well, you've done really exceptional things since going on your own. So I'm so grateful for you. And I love that story so much. So, what would you say is the mission behind your dedicated? community? Well, I think you just said it. It's the community. I think my main focus in anything that I do, and I'll list a couple of the things I've done in the past, like uh, Dedicated Academy, for example, where I taught data visualization. I did in-person training. I run conferences. I have a dedicated show. And all of those things are meant to bring people together. So getting the community together and even the Dedicated Circle, which I'm running now, they all have this similar thread running through them all, which is just bringing people together to talk about data topics. And I'm not sure why I'm so into data. I can't even put my finger on it. Like, I just love it <laughs> I so know why. much. I know. Like, people ask me like, oh, you do so much. I'm like, I don't feel like I'm doing much at all because to me, it's like watching your favorite Netflix show and watching it all day, every day. It's fun, right? Like for me, this is my fun. Well, work isn't work if you enjoy it. Absolutely. It's all the other entrepreneurial parts that feel like work, like building sales funnels and writing sales copy and <laughs> building websites and bookkeeping, right? But yes. but the actual creation of what you're teaching, that doesn't feel like work at all. And, and I, I totally get that. I have to ask you, because I feel like I see a common thread between people who fall into data and get like shot with this Cupid's arrow <laughs> of love. Are you into crime solving or murder mysteries or detective shows, anything like that? I have watched shows and I definitely enjoy them. I wouldn't say I'm into like crime stuff because I tend to avoid shows with violence. Like I'm very, I will have oh, nightmares. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that also happened. <laughs> so it's, We're like twins. Yeah. <laughs> Like I watched the last one I watched, I think was Knives Out. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yes, I love that it movie. It was really yep. good. And I think there is something to be said about trying to solve a mystery or some kind of puzzle. But again, it's like balanced with my dislike of violence. So it's like, it's hard to say. I asked because, I, by the way, I had the exact same thing happen after childbirth as well. I couldn't watch very gory or violent things. However, before that, I was a total 
crime show junkie, you know, like SVU and stuff. And I realized I found a very deep common thread among other analysts and people who love data because there is this aspect of solving some mystery, answering some burning question. And I, I find that that appetite for mystery comes through a lot in the passion of data. And I tell people to kind of think of it that way. If you want to make it fun, ask like, not many people know this, but are you familiar with a show called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? No. It might predate you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a geography, a very old geography computer game that turned into a TV game show oh, for kids. Okay. And I was actually on it when I was a kid. Wow. That's and cool. <laughs> I know that's my, it's my claim to fame. But what I loved about the show is that it had a specific formula. There was always, let's see, there was always the loot, which was whatever was stolen, the warrant and the crook. Okay. You still had to find these three pieces in order to apprehend the criminals. So when I look at data storytelling, I think of different pieces of that as like, what's the loot? What's the data? What's the villain? Like, who's the crook mm -hmm, stealing mm -hmm. it? Who? What's the obstacle in the way of success? And then the warrant is like the recommendations for going out and actually getting the issue under control or moving things forward. That's interesting. It reminds me kind of of the game Clue. Um, I play with yes. my kids quite a bit. And I had to explain to them what murder was. That was fun. That was, <laughs> at that well, time, that's good. they were aged like <laughs> four and five. So that was fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's when people hit each other in the head with something, but they're fine. <laughs> I know. And then we come outside after a snowstorm and they saw footprints and they're like, I think there's been a murder. I'm like, no, no, oh. there's not been a murder. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's oddly adorable. <laughs> no, if, if you're into that, I highly suggest the movies that were based on uh, the Agatha Christie novels, which are Murder on the Nile was the most recent one. And then I'm forgetting, oh, Murder on the Orient Express. I think my mom has watched all of those and read the books. She's into that. Those are palatable. Yeah. Those are palatable if you're a little squeamish. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so enough about mysteries, which data is. So when you're working with practitioners and you're working with them in your academy and training, what do you see as the biggest stumbling blocks that they start encountering when they're on this journey to better data storytelling? What are the biggest things standing in their way generally? I think it's the assumption that their audience knows as much as they know about the data. So typically, ah. data analysts, data scientists, data storytellers, they've been digging through this data for hours, days, weeks, months, whatever, right? And they've spent so much time with it and they've filtered it in many ways so that they get it in a, in a much deeper level that when they're presenting it, it's sort of this like lack of understanding that they can't get into the mindset of their audience who has not had that same experience. And I think that's something I've seen folks struggle with. And it's, it always comes back to defining your audience, making sure you actually understand their level of understanding with what we're looking at. That's one of the bigger obstacles when either presenting or even, you know, sending across a data visualization. So making sure you have just the right level of context that you provide and nothing more. <laughs> Don't overwhelm them either. So it's, it's this balance again of making sure you provide enough information, but not too much information that goes along with your data visualizations. That's very true. So that's one of the mindset blocks that I work with workshop students as well is this idea that 
we're presenting something to people that they know more about than we do. So why would we be presenting, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, even if someone has more years of experience in an area, how do we find the uniqueness of the lens that we have? What is our unique expertise? What is our unique take on the information that we can provide, right? And then also, how can you draw people in and welcome that they have experience in this area and make it a collaboration rather than a grandstanding <laughs> bid to be the king of the mountain in terms of that topic, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely good thing to acknowledge that your audience knows more about the subject matter, obviously, even though you must know more about the data and the ins and outs of the actual data structures and all that good stuff, acknowledging that your audience has the subject matter expertise and making them feel valued as well, and maybe even bringing them on to the journey of data analysis and asking them like, hey, does, does this look right to you? Because I've definitely heard stories where, you know, the data analyst, data scientist goes down a rabbit hole, creates this whole analysis, spends weeks, comes back, and they're <laughs> yeah. like, look what we've done. And they're like, yeah, well, we knew that. Like, we already knew this. This was this is the way we built it. This is why it's like that. It's like, oh, okay. So keeping communications open. But I do want to hear, since you said this is one of the common obstacles, what What's the main one that you have seen in your experience? Well, absolutely a big block around belief that not only do they not know as much as their audience, but they don't know their material well enough. And that if they get asked a question that they don't know the answer to, they have failed. And this is one of the key things that I try to work with them on is not knowing the answer to a question is a neutral event. This is one of my favorite philosophies is that every single event is neutral. There's no inherently good or bad, meaning it's the relationship you have to the event. So what I try to tell them is consider looking at the event as an opportunity to get more information and extend your relationship to them by following up with them later if you don't have information, but that it's not about not having the answer in the moment. It's how you handle the inevitability that you will not have an answer in the moment. Do you respond with confidence, with ease, with strength? Do you say, oh gosh, that is such a great question and it's a great place for us to go deeper. I don't have the answer in that moment, but I'm happy to get that for you? Or do you respond in this, I'm sorry for being alive. I should know this. I failed you. Energy. <laughs> and I know that energy. That's how I used to respond. I used to think, why I'm, am I not Siri or Alexa? I should know all of it. <laughs> well, I mean, that clearly, I, I think I've also gotten over the, the whole fear of not knowing something. But there have been times when I'm presenting data visualization or dashboard and they say, well, that number doesn't look right. Oh, yeah, that's oh, a tough that's one. that's scary. <laughs> that's not what I saw in my report. And you're like, ah. yeah, it's hard to do. Do you have any tips for dealing with stuff like that? Well, again, as a professional speaker, not just in like business meetings, but as a speaker where I'm going on a conference stage with 800 people and I have a video and I accept the fact that there's a high risk something's going to go not according to plan. And that includes that I might have a mistake in a slide. I use spell check, but something can get through. It's about what will you do in the moment you when you are charged with the task of moving forward 
and keeping things chill and not falling apart under that. I have had spelling mistakes even in a workshop recently. (laughs) It's so fun teaching other analysts who are not just learning what you're teaching, but they're analyzing every pixel of your slides. So someone caught like some tiny color mismatch between two things and (laughs) or pointed out like, well, this wouldn't happen in the real world. And I'm like, thank you. You guys are so good at your jobs. Thanks for pointing that out. I'll definitely fix that. And let's focus on the main piece and we're moving on. It's just you speak to it unapologetically. And that for me is owning your confidence and role, but you're also owning the fact that you're an imperfect human being Mm -hmm. and you're not afraid to learn from your mistakes. Yeah. I had takes a lot of practice. I had a speaking coach who came in once when I was still at my corporate job and he said, you know, treat it everything, not like a potential problem, but a potential opportunity. So when somebody points that out, like, oh, you have a typo, treating it as an opportunity to practice your keeping it together skills, right? Like Right, right. <laughs> Sometimes what I've done was there was a color with that color mismatch. Instead of fixing that, I actually now use that as a test to see how sharp my students' eyes are. See? Opportunity. <laughs> I'll point that out. I'll, if they miss it, I point it out like, uh, oh, you didn't catch it. <laughs> That's a good way to address all your mistakes, right? Oh, I was just testing you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's it. one of my best. <laughs> no, you're 100% right. And honestly, you can be told this as a mindset, you can, can be given this, but it's really the practice of putting this into play when you're under the gun in the moment and the spotlight is shining and you're sweating bullets. You just have to kind of like pull from that in that moment. So yeah, another big stumbling block, if I could share, I'd love your take on this, is the unproductive habits that people have already learned about data storytelling, data visualization, creating slides that they're bringing into the learning experience. I rarely get to teach people with a totally blank slate. So I'd love to get your takes, whether it's like bullet points or bad colors, things like that. Yes, I think we're the components of the influences around us, right? So if you've taken a college course, or if you read books, or if you just had some practice with data visualizations, I think we all have a place where we start and it's never the same place. A lot of times it is helpful to work with somebody who has some experience because at this point they know kind of what good looks like. So I actually prefer working with individuals who have had some experience so then I can say, okay, so you know, this looks like a bad chart, right? Like we both know it looks like a bad chart. Whereas somebody- on the same page. (laughs) Yeah, whereas somebody who has zero experience, like I'm thinking back to myself, my first data visualization was, I'll just say bad. I won't use any bad words. It was bad. It was not good. Room for improvement. Room for improvement, yes. But my manager (laughs) thought it was okay. He was like, okay, this, you know, does the job. But I wanted to keep evolving. So I started Googling kind of what does good look like, right? So just looking at good images all day long. And then I started making some adjustments. And then I'd send it back to him. And he'd be like, you know, every time I see this, it looks a little different. And I don't know what you're doing, but something is looking better. And it, it, right. it was these little things that are hard to tell, like removing borders or grid lines or changing the colors or bolding a number. And these tiny little things that I think come with experience, but you're definitely right. There are people who come 
with different experiences. Like if they have a high preference on adding a lot of text to their data visualizations that they expect their readers to sit there and read, which you and I know that's not going to happen. They'll <laughs> glance at it. They'll see if they understand it. They'll, you know, jump around. And sometimes it is harder to unteach somebody a certain skill or habit, <laughs> but it's, it's possible, right? But we all start, we all start at different places. Yeah. I think for me, what's been helpful is when working with clients and workshops is gauging the level of beginner's mind that their team will bring. Sometimes that beginner's mind is only available if they bring an outside so-called expert rather than someone like a boss trying to tell them what the right way is. But someone from the outside comes and they're like, oh, okay, okay, it must be real. (laughs) But I really find that that's crucial. And that's something that I share with potential clients is how teachable is your staff? How malleable, how willing are they to be neuroplastic and absorb new things? Or at least if they're skeptical, how willing are they to try something new? Because clearly by the time someone is coming to me or you, something has been identified that's not working. Yeah. Generally, it's very rare when I find someone proactively like, things are going great, but we want to get better anyway. (laughs) This is generally (laughs) not not the motivation for people to seek us out. So I'm seeing a theme emerge here that I really like, which is obstacles, the things standing in the way from people being successful. So I'd love to actually follow this a bit. Do you have advice? So sometimes the blocks are internal, but a lot of times I'll train people and they're loving the content. They're loving the new approach. They know something was wrong beforehand, but it's their organizational culture or like their external clients that are the obstacles to bringing about change. They want things a certain way. You get what I'm saying. I get what you're saying. It's not always up to you which unfortunately, (laughs) right? right? You, yeah. Once you learn the best practices and you're like, no, this is the way to do things. And then the people above or your clients just say, uh, no, that's not what we wanted. And I've definitely seen this. I'll share about my journey of creating interactive dashboards to client that was used to PowerPoint. Okay. It must be in PowerPoint. That was the motto. If it's not in PowerPoint, it doesn't matter. Wow. Yes. Okay. And we would build slides. <laughs> we would build so many slides, like 90 to 110 slides every week of updates. And the only way to convince these individuals that this was not the best way to go was to go undercover and build a whole project on my own time. In I used Tableau at the time, in Tableau, to show them that all of those slides could be replaced with a single dashboard, like literally one page. Wow. And we can even track who sees it and we can track how often they watch it, right? Versus the PowerPoint that you send out, you're not even sure if the leaders that are meant to be looking at it are looking at it. And that was the best way to convince them to go this route is to show them. And this is something that they probably would not have asked for because A, they didn't know it existed. B, they didn't know how easy it was or that they can actually use it. I think people fear something that they're not familiar with. And many of the individuals that I'm referring to have not used Tableau before. You know, they thought they'll break something if they click on it. Like, no, it's like a browser. It's like you can click, you can do whatever you want and showing them like, hey, you want to see your department? You click a button and it'll filter magically. And they're like, 
oh my God. Yeah. So that was my <laughs> And throw like glitter <laughs> when it's happening. <laughs> Unicorns start dancing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I think we're on to something. Yeah. <laughs> we should do that, right? Yeah. So, so getting them on board by showing them an alternative and just literally taking the time to create the things that you've learned. So if they're opposed to other things like maybe visual formatting and going outside of the the brand colors that the company's used to, if you want to show how you can be more effective creating them side by side and showing them like, Hey, this is what you're used to. Here's what it can be. And being collaborative and having a conversation and asking for transparent feedback of like, do you think this is better? Like, yeah. Okay, great. We can do that now. So it won't always work. Obviously sometimes companies are set in their way and they're not going to change and, you know, find a new client if it bothers you, I guess. But Right. Moving on. Bye. Yeah. You bring up a really good point around choice for practitioners. Even though I serve the company and through the company I serve practitioners, there's an aspect for me of, you know, if you're going to make this investment in learning a new, more evidence-based way of presenting information effectively, but you won't be able to actually implement it. There are lots of creative ways to collaborate to do this. You can gamify things with your clients. What you did was such a powerful strategy where you took the initiative to create an alternative solution and to show them the power of it. Because I often think of this as like a really cluttered house. We'll get used to a cluttered house where we don't see the clutter anymore, but it's draining our energy and it's cluttering our minds. And then when suddenly the house is clean, you didn't realize how draining it was. You're like breathing a huge sigh of relief, like, oh, okay, now. (laughs) But you didn't exactly know what happened necessarily. So I think there is something to deciding, am I going to be able to be in the highest service to this client, this organization, if I'm not able to make that headway even with creative strategies? When do you think people can make that decision? Like, when does it get to be like, I can't make this work anymore? Yeah, for me, it honestly became, it was the annoyance of creating this large deck of duplicating and copy pasting (laughs) numbers that obviously were going to just get mistyped because you're sometimes manually typing them in and updating and you can't verify data, you can't check it. So it was partly driven by the annoyance, I'd say a third. Another third was wanting to prove myself in the organization as adding new innovative value. And the third, the most fun, was I got to play with a tool that I really enjoyed. And it wasn't even a data analytics dashboard that I built. It was more of like management reporting that obviously had data in it, but it included a lot of creative aspects like You can use cool images and it allowed me to learn skills along the way of how do I create this in an interactive manner where it serves this very large, diverse audience and gives everybody what they need in one page. So, yeah, and I was was also at a place where I could experiment because, well, I had the time and the desire. So for me, it was kind of like, let's let's try it. And I took the risk to see what would happen. It didn't cost the company money for me to actually do this because I worked on it outside of my 
regular hours. It paid off though, because they really loved it. They're like, yay, let's do this everywhere. I'm like, yay, that was good. You're like, oh, like, yeah. oh okay, great idea. <laughs> I know. We're thinking. Really <laughs> so. Oh, well, that's amazing. You know, and here's the thing we mentioned in the beginning that freedom is about more than just money or more than just, I think, money, but also time, right? I would argue that there's an aspect like we want to feel free in our roles. And part of that freedom for me in a big reason why I decided to make the jump from corporate was I had to ask the question, am I in the highest service here or would I be elsewhere? And you just said something so important I want everyone to hear, which is you didn't feel like you were being able to show your full value. And I don't think organizations realize how important it is to an employee's satisfaction that they feel they're able to reach their potential and bring value. I think that is a core currency that inspires people to stick around in an economy that is exploding right now, where this is a candidate's market for sure. So if companies want to keep good good personnel, you have to ask yourself, does this person feel empowered to bring their value? Because they could bring that somewhere else if they yeah. really needed to. And sometimes it is a bit hard to gauge, right? Because you, not, not everyone is going to have the same motivations. There are definitely people, and I've, I've known them personally, that are happy creating that large deck every week. They know what to do. There's nothing new. <laughs> yeah. This goes there. That's true. And we're happy, right? So I think it's really getting to know the people that you're working with, which I know gets difficult, the large organization, but that's why you have teams and managers and it's the responsibility of the closest manager of that team to know the employees as closely and understand what drives you. And I was lucky enough in that role that my manager was actually asking like, hey, are you happy doing this? And do you want to do more? And there are definitely some really good managers I work with and some not so great ones that we won't talk about. No names, no, no names, names. You know who you are. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening. <laughs> In terms of data storytelling, this is a phrase that I find to be very nebulous for people. Like we use it all the time, but what does it actually mean? And I find that different people have different meanings of it. So for you, if you had to distill data storytelling into like a little elevator pitch, what does it really mean to you? Like what's the most critical aspect to it? And what do you find is missing from it mainly when you're working with data practitioners? Yeah, I'd say so for data storytelling, I always like to tell people that when you, when you just have data that you're showing people, it tends to be unexciting. It's just there. It's kind of like factual, right? And then just storytelling on its own tends to be perceived as, oh, it's like fluffy. There's just a story. But when you put the two together, when you have data that actually drives a story or can back up the facts of that story, I think it really helps your audience relate to it more versus just seeing the data. They get to go on a journey. And obviously, this depends. There's so many different types of data stories that you could tell. But let's pick an example of a client that is buying merchandise and you're telling the, the regional manager about the sales from various clients, you can take them on a journey and then a story about that client, give them a name, give them a, a personality and really bring it home, make them really feel the emotions of that client and kind of get that emotional connection where you use data to back it up and say, oh, you know, this client makes up 30% of our portfolio. So we should really 
treat them nicely and build that whole story together. Whereas if you just show them the data, they're kind of like, okay, yeah, data, that's important. Like as humans, we tend to not interpret data the same that we would when it's combined with a story, especially if there is a person involved, a specific person, not just a group of people. But when you focus in on that, like one specific individual and give them a name and, and a face, oh my goodness, give them a face and you're done. <laughs> you can really have that emotional connection. And people who get it, I think are just such better storytellers in, in general, when they know that they can have this emotional connection. Absolutely. What I love about that is you're tapping into both sides of the brain in this case. To your point, data facts are important. And I feel that most decisions are data informed. Hopefully they are data informed, right? We're not shooting from the hip. However, humans make decisions from more emotional places. So they're really more emotion-driven decisions that are data-informed. This is kind of what I have found. So I love your approach where I, I use something similar where we might have like customer satisfaction or you know something with more verbal feedback. We create a story around that person or the struggle that they're having. Give them a face, like you said. So that triggers the empathy, but then I'll use data to extrapolate that struggle out to however many people are seeming to have the same problem. And then I'll take that and apply it towards the stakes that matter most for the stakeholders. This could translate to losing revenue, market share, customer satisfaction, brand favorability, whatever are the measures that matter to the stakeholders, it's that's their language. I find that chain is really useful. Like this is Angela and she's experiencing this and you're painting a picture. Guess what? Angela is 30% of our visitors right now. Taking that number into account, this could translate into this much lost revenue or profitability or lost orders. It's hard to do that all the time, but it's something to aspire to. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I think you know, earlier you mentioned that you hope most decisions are data informed. I'd say that a lot of decisions, especially the decisions, like even if I talk about myself or my kids, they're made through emotion, but justified with data after, right? Like you, you rationalize yes. it with data. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's important to make that emotional connection first and then get people to actually care and then use data to really rationalize it for the other side of the brain. This is exactly right. I think one of my favorite business coaches says that decisions are emotionally driven, but data justified. Yeah. And it's so, so it's true. A, it's so true. Like even when I buy something, right? Like it's all emotions. I really needed this crystal because the facts say that more crystals lead to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. It's really pretty, but statistically it's important yeah. for... <laughs> <laughs> it needed a home, so that's right. It had to go somewhere. It couldn't just sit <laughs> on the shelf. <laughs> Why not here? Yeah, <laughs> this kitten obviously needed a home. That's right. emotional. Yeah, I can't just find that with data. So. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, but it, I, I think it's an important point for also decision makers who might be listening to recognize ask themselves, like, how really many decisions am I making purely from a data standpoint or rather just saying, or even a bias that might have been there? I find a big obstacle practitioners have, I'd love your take, is 
Stakeholders will direct their request to find the information that will confirm a bias or objective they have in the data, and they'll ask the practitioner to find that information to confirm it. So I'd love your take too yeah. on that. I've been there. So here's the story. We were running a survey. I won't go into too much detail there, but we were running a survey with the hopes of receiving a very specific outcome from leaders in data. Okay. And the outcome that we received was quite the opposite of what we were looking for. And I was the bearer of the news. I didn't know if it was good or bad news. I really wasn't sure that they wanted to push the responders to say this one thing because they were all saying something else. And I was told to run the numbers again. And I'm like, there's nothing <laughs> to run. Like the data is the data. Like we're, we can't really change much. Like these are the results. And they're like, well, no, that can't be right because, you know, we had this idea that they're going to say X, but why are they all saying Y? I'm like, well, because maybe why is what they're thinking. Because that's what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> so that was interesting. Hard to push back, though, especially if, you know, the, the people wanting this decision to be made are all the leaders and they're all on the same page. And you're like, Ugh, the one saying, hard. no, this is wrong. So what did you do in that case? We published what the survey said. We, <sighs> yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. We stood. I mean, that's what the data said. We are, we were not about to go changing the data. So they were just pretty surprised. Like, obviously they wanted it to say the other thing, but in the end, like I actually had to share my screen, show them the data. I'm like, let's look at a few sample responses and, you know, just randomly click into people's written responses and show you how we came up with that because the respondents, it wasn't like multiple choice responses. It was free text. And what I had to do was create and actually use Tableau for this. I had to structure unstructured responses by using keywords. So if there was a keyword like cat, for example, right, it would be bucketed into this bucket. If there was another keyword that we were looking for, it'd be bucketed into the, you know, the other bucket. And then we created a multiple choice response out of those scenarios by using keywords. And so explaining that in detail, they were able to understand and I guess they just had to come to terms with they just, this is what the data is telling us. It's hard for them, I guess. And they start questioning it, which, which is good. It was a good experience, I think, for everybody to get an understanding of how all this works. So it was, it was a fun, fun memories we're bringing up here. <laughs> so fun. No, you know, that's really inspiring. We haven't talked a lot on this show about the more ethical dilemmas that practitioners find themselves where they're caught between the integrity of what the information is saying and the desires and intents of the people looking at the information. And sometimes, depending on the relationship that you can have with your stakeholders, you know, I've run data a few times and say, like, we can do that again. And something to explore is if this had confirmed what you had believed, would you be asking me to run it again? And sometimes that led to a moment of introspection, but that required a pretty strong rapport yeah. where someone really respects my integrity as an analyst. It might not feel safe for everyone to do that, but it is something to consider around creating awareness because I think confirmation bias is one of the most hidden shadows of business in general and decision-making where an analyst who really wants to take command 
of their role as an ethical data communicator is going to learn about confirmation bias and strategies for working with it. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot a lot of times I, I'd imagine they would feel like their job is on the line, right? Like, do I push back or yes, do I keep my job? Right. It's exactly it's a, well. Sometimes finding a what I call a senior advocate can really help. Whether it's a manager, someone who is going to go to bat for you. Sometimes having that in your back pocket can really help because you can feel really scary like you're the only one. Yes, yes. <laughs> the chicken little trying to. <laughs> but I think it's a good sign for maybe looking for another job as well. Like, do you want to be associated with this company? If yes. They're not willing to get that. Respect, so. That's another decision point. Yeah. For sure. Especially in this economy. <laughs> so. In this economy, you want to. <laughs> yes, exactly. This candidate's market. So. Where do you feel you're still growing as a data practitioner? What kind of obstacles are you working with inside in terms of a growth path? Yeah, I think for me, so now I'm more of a data media company, right? Essentially. So <laughs> I, I still have the other roles of teaching and, and, and training on data viz, but my struggles right now are trying to keep up with all things data. So now not only data storytelling and data visualization, but I'm also learning about data integration, data governance, cloud data warehousing, ah, sort of like okay. data mesh, data fabric. There's so much out there. It's overwhelming, but so exciting. And that's part of my favorite job is, you know, talking to clients about what they're doing. They all are innovating in their own ways. They're all striving towards a similar mission of trying to bring data to the business, cleaner data, higher quality data, quicker and, you know, easier to read, easier to get insights companies that now all you have to do is plug the data in and then it'll just give you insights without you having to do anything. So my struggle and where I'm just striving to get better is understanding how all of that works together. Because my knowledge, my expertise is on the data viz, data storytelling, creative side. And that's where I still have the most fun, but trying to get better at understanding all these other tools and all the steps that have to happen before we can do the fun stuff. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We need that foundation before we get to the fun part. Totally. All right. So we've arrived at a segment called The Upgrade, which is a tool, a resource, a book, an expert Something cool that our listeners can check out right away that was either a big part of your journey or just something you're having fun with right now that you think they'd love to check out. I think I'll go with the tool and I want to talk about Canva, which is a oh, design tool. I love Canva. I'm mm. obsessed with Canva. I'm in there at least <laughs> once a day. Absolutely love it. For those who are not familiar with it, it is a design tool where I, at this point, replaced PowerPoint for myself. So when I teach a course and I have wow. to create PowerPoint, I do all of that in Canva. So much easier, honestly. And I use the paid version, which is like $5 a month or something like super cheap, where you have unlimited images and the formatting options are just out of this world. So much easier than I used to love PowerPoint. But yeah, Canva is definitely great. And they recently, I think they bought Flourish Studio, which is this animated charts Oh, yes. So now you can create animated charts and pair them together with Canva. I even replaced Camtasia with Canva, which is a video editing tool. Now really? I edit my videos in Canva where you can have overlay images and add music. It's 
I love it so much. It's so good. Wait, you are editing, sidebar as a video creator, you are editing videos in Canva? Yes. So sidebar, my process is this. Because <laughs> Camtasia is so Asking slow. For <laughs> yeah. Camtasia is so slow. The way I do it is now if I record a video, let's say 20 minute video, hour video, I get the MP4 file. I drop it into something called Descript. If you don't know this Descript, it's a DE with the word script. No. Oh my God. Absolutely amazing. It basically gives you a script of everything you said, right? But the cool thing is you can edit your video by editing the text. So if I remove five (laughs) words of the text, it'll remove that part of the video. If you click remove all the ums and o's and the uh, it remove <gasps> all of that Stop from the video. It. Wait, wait, wait. There's if you want to remove all the awkward pauses and reduce them to like one point one seconds or half a second, whatever you want to do, depending on your style. One button. Then I take that video into Canva, and that's where I can add all the creative stuff, like the overlay, the text, the, whatever it is. And it's it's just it's so good. Oh my gosh. I know. You just, you just completely blew my mind with video editing, which I'm sure will be important for data practitioners yeah. if you're making videos. <laughs> I, I think well, and you should be making videos. You know, branding absolutely. is important. So. Branding is important. We'll have you come back for a whole phase two of <laughs> online branding. Wow, that's amazing. I'm going to be checking that out like right after this. But that's amazing. And and how are you finding, because Canvas reached out to me a few times around their chart makers, and how are you finding animated charts to fit into sort of data visualization best practices? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a time and place for them, right? You can't just willy-nilly create animated charts just because they're fun. But I think if you have an actual reason for creating animated charts, like I've used them for different reasons. Uh, I think one was when I was hosting one of my first conferences and I wanted to show, this was actually so much fun. I wanted to show representation from companies who have registered because I, I collected the information like, you know, if you're oh, yeah. Apple or Microsoft or Deloitte or whatever. And I created like a running bar chart from the start of when I opened registrations to like a month or two later and you could see some companies like signing up and then the other one kind of starts to overtake them. And what that did for me from a marketing perspective was I had a lot more registrants trying to up their representation in the <laughs> hopes that the next chart, they will win. And I'm like, oh, this is working out great. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Could you share the URL to that? I would yeah. love to see it and maybe copy it. But yeah. I know, I think the listeners, I love creative things like that because you're right. Uh, company who identifies as a competitor might see, wait a minute, they're gaining on us. Let's uh, that actually let's happened. Yeah. <laughs> it was so much fun. <laughs> I love that. So definitely share that and I'll put it on the show notes page for that. All right. This is amazing advice. So we've arrived at our final question. Think very hard here and imagine this very plausible scenario. You're crossing the finish line of the way too cool ultra marathon. I love the name. <laughs> when suddenly you trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. Do you remember what you're presenting about and what advice would you give to yesterday you? Oh, wow. I love the marathon thing because I'm a runner. Like, yay. No, no way. Definitely. Yeah, I've run ultras before too. So falling into a vortex right before I finish, that sounds terrible. Hopefully this happens. We'll make it right after. We'll make right it after. right after. <laughs> I worked so hard. I mean, I'm tired. You're right. 
All right. So I remember the presentation. It was one of my first gigs. Like I said, they gave me the data and they, they sort of gave me direction. I had to create a chart that basically shows there are four groups of personality types that we use at the company. And you take a little 10 question assessment and it tells you how much of, you know, A, B, C, D personality you are. So it plots you on a scatter plot. And I designed like a four quadrant scatter plot that will plot a little dot with your name on it, which is so oh, cool because you can click on it and neat. see how it compares to all your colleagues. And I was really excited to deliver it. And I remember specifically telling the person who was training me that I wanted to use the colors that everyone was familiar with. Like those four personality types had like a red, green, blue, and orange or something. And they're like, no, no, you have to use brand colors. You have to use our brand colors. And I was like, <laughs> deflated. I'm like, okay. I used those brand <laughs> colors. And guess what? In my presentation, the people who were viewing it for the first time, they're like, oh, this is great. But you should have used the colors that everyone's familiar with. <laughs> oh, the frustration. Oh, what was I thinking? I oh, know. <laughs> great I advice. couldn't say, yeah, I knew that. Because obviously I'm not presenting. So I... You're just nodding and mm. it was frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I, what, I, <laughs> wow. what I wish I did back then was really stand my ground and say, no, like use the colors <laughs> that people are familiar with. And to this day, I'm still very passionate about color and data visualization to the point where I'm writing a book on this very topic. Wow. Just color and data viz? It's literally, it's called Color Wise. So it's like being wow. wise about color. I'm working with O'Reilly. I'm getting this out hopefully this year if I can just get to work already. It's literally just me. I need to add oh, one Tell chapter. me about it. <laughs> I need one more chapter. We'll have to race against each other just so I get mine out. This Wait, year when too. is yours coming out? Well, due to some new timelines around graphics, it was supposed to be this year, but because of how graphics heavy mine is, because I love my potential readers and they want lots of graphics, it's most likely going to be early next year. But I've also learned a lesson of not committing to a date until the manuscript is submitted. So it's TBD. Yeah, I guess mine (laughs) mine might be early next year too. You just don't know. Because... I also have to work with the artist. But what is, what is your book on? Right. So mine's called Story Driven Data. Okay. It's actually based on what we talked about earlier, this idea that really it's stories that drive decisions, but data that informs it. And it's really a soup to nuts, full immersion into the data storytelling process during business meetings that starts from the very genesis of presentations, the first ask all the way through to public speaking and nerve management skills and everything in between. So it's like one-stop shop for like everything you need to deliver an amazing presentation. And then people can choose to go deeper and dive deeper with other resources that I provide. So, Oh, nice. And that's coming out next year. That's exciting. I'm not making any promise. If it's not next Next year, year, then I don't don't know. (laughs) I'll have to get you on my show to talk about the book. I would absolutely love that. But shooting for a manuscript submission, end of this month or mid-August. And then after that, it's about four months out. So that's the goal. You're on. Let's race. We'll keep it. (laughs) Because mine is so similar. My, My full manuscript draft is due end of July and... My goal is end of today. It's not going to happen, obviously. But <laughs> well, then we should conclude this interview so I don't delay. <laughs> no, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so. 
No, and it's different when you have a publisher too. You know, I'm on my own deadline, so it's a it tends to be malleable with how much life throws you. It's which so much harder. I've self published four books. This is my first book wow. with a publisher, and incredible. It's yeah, it's actually easier with the publisher telling you this is the date you need it versus you're like exactly any date. Yep. So. Yeah, it's it's been quite a roller coaster, but it is happening. I am in the the final stretch. I don't know marathon language, but I'm in some <laughs> sort of final stretch of it. So I'm excited. We'll be celebrating our new children, our new babies <laughs> yes, together. Exactly. It's crowning for a year and a half, you know. I love that so much. So I'm very <laughs> I'm sorry, that's, but that's ouch. That's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the best way I can I can phrase it. But I'm so excited to hear about yours too. And that is really fantastic advice. And, and if I could add something to that, sometimes what I've done is when I knew my intuition was telling me to go a certain way, but I was being directed otherwise, sometimes I got with people in advance and showed them two versions and asked which one is clearer, which one makes more sense. Mm -hmm. And if they're drawn to the ones that I would have gone, I'd be like, oh, guess what? This is the way I would have suggested. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, it's much easier when you don't have someone pushing back on your ideas that actually ended up being good. It's also about, like we said, pulling them into the process. I think when they feel like when they're pulled in and they're empowered in the process, they are in a much more collaborative place, which I think is going to apply to pretty much all areas of data communication. Oh my gosh, this chat was so fun. Obviously, this can't be our last one because we had such a blast. But unfortunately, our time has run out and Kate has a book to finish today. <laughs> so <laughs> please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Okay, so you can find me if you Google the word dedicated or look up my name because I don't think I know any other person with my first and last name combination. It's pretty so, unique. I know. I'm so happy. And I've changed my name <laughs> a few times, but this is my final name, hopefully. <laughs> so yes, you can look me up on um, LinkedIn and YouTube are probably the best places. We're going to dedicated.com is another alternative. Perfect. And all the links and resources, everything will be available on the show notes page for this episode. Kate, I'm so glad we finally made this magic happen. I loved this chat so much. I hope it's not the last. I will see you at the finish line yes. of our books. And <laughs> thank you. And I really hope our paths cross again soon. Absolutely. This was fun. Thank you. All right. I love that conversation. I hope you did too. It was years in the making. Kate is definitely one to watch, definitely on LinkedIn, and especially if you're seeking to create a stellar professional brand in the data world. Definitely check out her LinkedIn course on using LinkedIn to build a brand in the field of data. <laughs> I absolutely loved it, and I can't wait to see what she does next. To catch all of the links to the resources mentioned in this episode and to stay in touch with Kate, please visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 080. I would love if you could leave me a comment or suggestions because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting your insights and ideas. And if you like what you've heard, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration by one of my faves, Brene Brown. 
and that is, stories are just data with a soul. <laughs> My take, yes. I believe that the soul is the seat of our emotions, our creativity, and our connection to the world at large. And when we begin to tap into the awesome power of storytelling with data, we start to transform our data from just a bunch of digits into a pathway for transformation and success for our stakeholders, for our customers, and for ourselves. That's it for today. Stay well, stay in the spotlight, and namaste. Namaste.